Uh, we are in week 14 in our series out of Paul's uh, letter to, to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians. Uh, I almost said his first letter, but we know that it's not because he says in the letter, in my previous letters. So this is the, the letter that we have access to as being the first. Uh, this is what the Lord saw fit for us. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's okay for God to speak directly to churches, directly to individuals. And so whatever was in those previous letters, uh, the Lord did not necessarily see as being something that was for the entirety of humanity. But we do know that that is the case with this letter. So let's go ahead and stand to our feet. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read through the text real quick, and then we'll dive in to uh, the teaching. So beginning here in verse 2. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man." For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God." Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God." Let's pray. Father, we love you. I'm so thankful every week for the opportunity to come and dive into your word. I pray that today as we unpack this that you would be honored. Lord, help us to find the depth of what it is that you're trying to communicate to us, that it is applicable to our lives. Lord, that we would honor you. We love you and praise you in your mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. As you can imagine, uh, this is not one of those texts that was like, man, I can't wait to uh, teach, right? Uh, in fact, uh, you know, I was gone last week. I'm really thankful to Caleb, one of our elders who uh, filled in for me. Uh, and so we were kind of tossing around like who was going to land where. And it's funny because nobody wanted to land on this text right here. They wanted to make sure that I got it. So um, uh, I just, I, I want to tell you that we, we have what we call here, we use this language, open-handed, closed-handed, right? And so we have uh, open-handed and closed-handed interpretations of Scripture, right? So some of the things that are closed-handed would be virgin birth, uh, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection. Those are things that we really are not open to debate. Uh, open-handed, you know, we can sit down and, you know, have the debates among the Calvinists and the Arminians, right? And there are different views of Scripture, 
Uh, and so uh, when you come to texts like this, right, uh, it, it's very clear that there's going to be some form of open-handed understanding to what it means. And so there really are two primary views uh, when it comes to texts like this and specifically this text. The first is the text says it, I believe it. So you'll have a group of people who will look at the text, right, and they will say, well, it says these things that, you know, a man shouldn't have long hair, a woman should cover her head when she's praying, and so that's exactly what we're going to do. And then uh, the other primary view, and I guess there's really a third primary view, but the other primary view is to take the idea of that was then, this is now, right? And, I, and the third, I guess, would be just to ignore it altogether. This view right here, that was then, this is now, is really dangerous, okay? And let me tell you why this is really dangerous. This is a very dangerous view because once we set a standard that we are, as the church, go, well, here's how we're going to apply the text in our lives, we're going to go, it's not relevant because that was then and this is now. We set a standard that that could be applied to anything, okay? That we can look at any, any text within Scripture and go, well, that was then, this is now. And we see that because that approach has been taken from the church, that that approach is taken very generously by many within the church, especially today. So I want to come at it from this perspective. What is the text saying to the then and to the now, right? What, what was it saying to them then? Let's understand that so that maybe we can understand what it is saying to us now. Uh, so I want to back up a verse kind of into some territory that uh, Caleb was in last week, and that is just going one verse back. Paul begins this thought and ends the previous thought by saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, this word imitators in the Greek, okay, this word imitators is to be a follower, right? Okay, but it is also used as a measurement, specifically a measurement that is less than what it is being compared to. So when you go to the Greek and you look this word up, right, you're going to find it also being used as the word small. And so Paul's Paul's reference here, when he talks about being an imitator, right, it is not this picture of like being equal to Christ, right, right? You're going to be lesser than Christ. That's a reality, right? But you are, you should be able to be a measurement of Christ. Somebody should be able to look at you and go, wow, you fit within the scope of what it looks like to be Christ, right? But you aren't Christ, Okay, and, and so it kind of like I could get off on a tangent because there's, there's all this kind of theology floating around right now about how like, well, Jesus was just the first Christ and you and I can be Christ. If you haven't seen this, please don't go searching. These, this is, gets like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs crazy, right? But, and when I say that, and I mean it, I mean it. I, I'm, not, I'm saying this is crazy, crazy town. And a lot of people will be offended by that because they really love this idea that I can be Christ, but that's not what the scriptures teach, Okay, and so Jesus is the Christ. We are to be like him, but in its imitation, we will never be him. Okay, we are to be like him. And so there is a measurement there. So what does that look like, right? Well, Paul uh, is really trying to get this, this picture across to us that we should focus on what we do, not what others don't do. Okay. Being like Christ is not about looking at everybody else and seeing if they're being like Christ. 
It's about me being like Christ, right? And, and not that I don't ever look at something and have an opinion or have a conversation around it, but if, if the bulk of where I place my faith as a Christian is in looking at how everyone else is being a Christian, I'm missing something because I need to be focused on what I'm doing, right? Okay, and so this is where Paul's going to shift in. He's going to begin to talk about, like, what is it that you are doing? doing? What, how are you engaging in your relationship with the Father? So he comes here in verse 2, and he says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, some people kind of uh, discount this entire section of text because of this verse right here. They say, well, this is a contradiction, right? Because Paul has been telling them, you're not doing well in these areas. And yet right here, he says that I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain their traditions even as I delivered them to you. So is this a contradiction? Well, it's really not a contradiction because what Paul is telling them is that when it comes to the ordinances, when it comes to very clear instruction, I've told you to stand on one foot and hop three times, you stand on one foot and hop three times. But it is within the areas of liberty, what you're doing with your hands while you're on one foot hopping, that we have to talk about. Because it is within those areas that we haven't given you the little clear lines to paint within that you're taking liberty and you're finding yourselves in places of sin. When you're finding yourself in places where you are not looking like Christ. So he comes into this example here. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So the entire point of this next text is summarized right here in verse 3 for us. He says, I want you to understand something. What is that? He wants you to understand that there is an authority structure ordained by God. There is an authority structure in the kingdom of heaven, okay? That is why Paul is diving into this context right here for us, is he wants us to understand that authority structures exist in the kingdom of heaven. They exist within the kingdom of heaven, right? And this is, this is a reminder. It's a reminder that this exists because it always has and it always will. There has always been authority in God's kingdom, and there will always be authority in God's kingdom. When we dive into Revelation and we're looking at eternity and we're looking at the judgment, right, we understand that there will be those that will be set into positions of authority, which means that there will be those who are submitted to authority for eternity. So there is an authoritative structure that exists in God's kingdom, right? Now, the context for us here is looking at the authority structure that he has ordained within the confines of marriage, okay? But... It's a different authority structure outside of marriage. So he's specifically talking here about a husband and a wife, and, and, and this is where it is applied, okay? So this is the problem, I think, that a lot of times, and, and I want to kind of we'll look at the church. Outside of the church, man, they can take any text and, and skew it any way they want, okay? Inside of the church, we can be guilty of taking a text like this that's talking about marriage, right? And we can apply it to all men and all women, right? And what happens then? Well, then we end up with some of the toxic uh, types of views that, that the world is able to then go, well, look at the way they treat women. Look at the way that they talk about men. When we are modeling what it looks like to be imitators of Christ, right, 
then we aren't doing those things. We are looking like Christ, okay? So here's where the text gets, gets, gets interesting for us today. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven, okay? Now, the idea that I'm kind of diving into is like that was then. How, why, why was it like that? So head coverings, uh, they show up in the written word in the 14th century B.C. in the book of Leviticus. So that's the first time that we see anything in writing about head coverings. The next time we see it is in an Assyrian law paper in the 13th century B.C., okay? So, so 14th century, uh, we understand Moses is writing. He writes uh, about head coverings, God's view of it in Leviticus. This is under an old covenant in the Jewish terms, right? And then it is also seen in the Assyrian uh, uh, era. This is most likely somewhere in what is modern-day Iraq, okay? But by the time of the apostles, only prostitutes were found in public without a head covering. So it had begun in this way in external uh, influences where the wealthy wore head coverings and the poor did not. But just like what we would see today, right, where the elite, right, the wealthy wear some style, right, the goal for those who don't have resources and funds is to ultimately be able to dress that way, right? We know fashion works its way right from, from, from one end of the spectrum to the other. And so it was seen, forget Christianity, forget the Jewish faith, the world viewed wearing a woman wearing a head covering as her accepting some form of modesty. And a woman who didn't wear a head covering during this time was in some type of rebellion against what would have been considered the sexual expectations of men and women. All right? And make no mistake, prostitution is not a new thing, okay? Uh, in fact, we know that when we look back at ancient uh, religions, uh, prostitution, temple prostitution, they were a part of the way that some faiths even carried out their acts of worship, okay? All right? So, so this is what's happening during the time of the apostles, during the time of Christ. Why? Because it was a point of rebellion that, that, that these specifically these groups of people who wanted to engage in this type of sexual behavior, they were not going to be seen as being uh, a part of what was considered to be the status quo, all right? So your society is existing like this. The women dressed like this. It communicated something about what they believed, what they were willing to do, who they were. When a woman dressed with a covering on, it communicated what they believed, what they were willing to do, who they were, right? So you have these head coverings as a part of a cultural norm, normative. All right, move to verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So this is Paul using sarcasm. He has done this many, many times. He says, well, if she's not going to do it, she might as well cut her hair off, right? For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. So a woman's hair was cared for and often dressed very ornately, just like today, okay? 
women made a, mu- a, a lot about their hair, okay? And so having long flowing hair was a very uh, popular style. And if your hair wasn't long enough to get all the way down to your feet in a lot of times, uh, they would use these silk-like extensions to make their hair even longer, right? They would fill it with beads and jewels. Uh, and so it was something to look at. Now, this is going to sound a little bit crazy, but track with me for a moment. Remember, it's a different culture, but it was for many a point of lust, all right? So men looked upon women with very beautiful, ornately done hair, and that was a thing that they lusted after, all right? All right, what do you see right here? A dining room table, right? Okay. Just to give you some perspective, because this is the best perspective I really have. My, my granddad, who has gone to be with the Lord, uh, he told me when I was a, a kid that uh, I, I asked him, I said, why does, why does uh, my grandmother, why does she, she insist she always has a tablecloth on the table, right? And I just, it was so weird, like it was an adamant thing in the house. And he said, well, growing up, you always had a tablecloth on the table because you didn't want the legs to be seen because it was the same as a woman showing her legs. It was that this was a point of beauty or it would create lust. And so uh, women of the time did not want men to think about other women's legs, so they also put tablecloths on their table so that the legs of the table weren't exposed so that the men wouldn't think about the legs of women. Now, that sounds ludicrous, right? It sounds kind of crazy, okay? All right? But, but the point here is that what men lust after in culture, it shifts. Women's body shapes and sizes, the things that they lust after. We can go back and look at how art has changed, the things that they desire. It is driven by culture, okay? And so what is happening is that we are in a time specifically where Women with ornately done hair was a point of lust for a lot of men. And this is why certain women would not want to cover their heads because why? They wanted men to lust after them because it was a part of how they made a living, how they survived. Now, we have modern arguments against this, okay? And they're very circular. And this is problematic for me. I run into circular reasoning all the time, and it it kills me. The first is that men need to practice self-control. But the second is that we need to accept humanity's inability to, ex- to practice self-control, right? It's like, it's like, well, you know, men need to figure this thing out, right? But now we're going to change the class. It's time for a different lesson. Men don't have the ability to practice self-control, right? But tomorrow's lesson, men need to practice self-control, right? And, and, and we have this line of circular reasoning, and, and really it's like, well, which one is it going to be? Like men just need to have self-control or men can't practice self-control. And, and I want to argue that I'm going to be in the, in the parameters of the first one and the second one, okay? That men need to practice self-control, but there are a lot of men who will not practice self-control. And this is what, this is what I tell, tell my daughter. This is, this is part of the way that we have conversations is, hey, it is, on, it is the responsibility of a man to have self-control, but you need to be aware that there are plenty of men out there who have no interest in having self-control. And I can talk about it all I want, and I can get the T-shirt and the flag and be all like, men need to have self-control, but that means nothing to the guy that doesn't want to have self-control. 
right? He doesn't care, right? And when you create a world where you think, where, where you've deceived everyone into going, you know, men are getting it now, right? They've got it figured out. That man who has no self-control is loving it, right? Because he's, he's the predator at that point, and, and nobody is aware of it. So the reality is that there will always be those who do not practice self-control. So circle back into the text here. What does he say? He's saying that a wife is the glory of the home, okay? Right? A wife is the glory of the home. Verse 7, for a man ought to not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. What does glory mean? It means this, honor, renown, and especially divine quality, the unspoken manifestation of God, splendor. Can I tell you, men, when, when we do not reflect the glory of God, we, aren't, we are not being men, right? We are being deviants, okay? And so the conversation around toxic masculinity is completely removed from image bearers of Christ, Toxic masculinity, you want to have that conversation? Fantastic. But a person who is a toxic male is not being an imitator of Christ because we are the glory of God. And inside of the home, the woman is the glory of the home. She is the glory of the marriage. That's because she's better looking than us. Right? Like, we're out here busting it, working it. We should be, right, to make sure that the home is provided for, and, and that is how we glorify God, and she is making everything beautiful and everything organized and making sure that the kids have actually eaten, brushed their teeth, okay, stuff like that, stuff that if you're like me, you struggle with, right? My wife will be gone all day long. She'll come home and say, what have the kids eaten? Pizza, Right? <laughs> What have they drank? I don't know. Did they get anything to drink, right? Like, it's, is it my responsibility to make sure that they've had water? Okay, well, did they brush their teeth before they went to bed? Let's go wake them up and ask them, right? I don't know, right? Okay, so, so she really is the glory of what makes everything function. And you might go, well, that's, you know, that's not a woman's place, and this is not a man's place, and, and, and you can sit here and have all those arguments, but the reality is that there is just something naturally ornate inside of each of us that makes this thing work, right? Okay, um, and there's not like some like, well, my, my wife had better do these things, right? That's not it. I have no, let me, let me, let me give you a good expectation or a good, good, good picture of this. I don't have an expectation for my wife to prepare a meal for me, right? I, I, and I know that there have been generations where that was an expectation. I don't ever have that expectation, right? But my wife will also ask me when she's been gone all day, have you eaten today? Because if I'm not like hungry, I'm just not going to stop and fix something. Okay, if I'm working and I'm, you know, whatever it is that I'm doing my project, I'm not going, oh, it's 12 o'clock. I need to stop and uh, make myself a meal to eat. Okay, now if I'm on the clock on somebody else's dime, I might do that, right? I might be, oh man, 30 minute break where I get to eat. Let's go. You know what I'm saying? But if it's my project, I'm going to work right through. And it's just something that's innate. This is just a natural process that's taking place. Verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So we're going to pause here on verse 10. We're going to come back to 8 and 9. But verse 10 right here, listen to me. This is, this is why head coverings 
in my opinion, are not a necessity today, okay? It's all because of this word symbol right here, okay? It says that, is that, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Let's, we, we preach out of the ESV. I want to just look at a couple of other translations real quick. King James, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. NIV, it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. And I'm going to get to the angels thing in a moment because you're probably thinking, like, what do angels have to do with this? But let's just focus on the symbol for a moment, okay? Wearing a head covering is no longer a symbol nor a reason in our society, okay? World around at the time of the apostles, women wore head coverings, right? And if they didn't, it communicated a certain thing, okay? That symbol doesn't, it no longer has that reason anymore, okay? There's no longer this, 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 uh, this cultural expectation, right, okay? But it does pose the question for us, what is the symbol, right? What is the symbol within our culture? And more importantly, why does it matter? And Paul throws this crazy line in there, and he says, because of the angels. Now, preaching on women and head coverings is one thing, right? Okay? But trying to dive into how it ties into the angels, this is a whole, like, another level of confusion for us here. And we, we don't really have something that I would consider to be a really clear breakdown of what this means. So, this is the best I can discern, okay? So, I hope that you'll give me the, the space to, to not have a 100% absolute closed-handed argument for you, okay? Uh, what is this word angel in the Greek? It is the same every time it's used, 176 times. It is a supernatural messenger from God. Okay, so Paul says that for this reason, among these examples, women should be this way, men should be this way when they pray. Why? Because it's for the angels, because of the angels. Now, angels clearly exist within a defined authority structure, okay? There is a hierarchy, and they exist within this. We understand that at some point, an angel, and we don't know that angel's name, we've called him Satan, we've called him Lucifer, I've laid out in a previous series why those are actually not a name, uh, they're descriptions, okay? Uh, we don't know what this, who this, what this angel's name was, but some angel revolted, right? The idea that uh, God was not this incredible, benevolent creator, this angel thought that they could be like God. Uh, in fact, we know that the, a war waged, but we don't really know all the details, but we know that that fallen angel seeks to destroy that which God created, okay? It's a deceiver. Its goal is to keep us from experiencing the grace and goodness of God, okay? Uh, Paul, uh, John, when he writes in Revelation, gives a lot of kind of uh, summarization on this deceiver, this liar, right? In fact, he says that before the, uh, before that day of great wrath comes upon the earth, it says that, the, that this fallen angel that wages war, and that, that word for war there is the, the same word for politics, right, in the Greek. 
And so it's not so much that this deceiver comes in like with guns blazing, but there's some type of political war that takes place in the throne room of God, right? What does that mean? Well, we know how politics work, right? It's two different people saying terrible things about the other so that they can have power. And that's the war that the enemy is going to try to wage against God. He's going to try to come in and put God down and say God's this and God's that and he's no good. And none of it will be true, but the effort will be to deceive others, okay? So, the angels exist within this hierarchy. Some angels have fallen. Some have made a decision to turn against God. So, does submitting to authority somehow benefit angels? I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what this means. So, one of the arguments that I read in a commentary was that angels minister among us, all right? This is a commonly... Uh, this is a, a commonly interpreted view of Scripture, right? That God uses His angels to bring messages, that they minister among us. And so when the saints are gathered together, right, that there would be angels among the saints, right? They're glorifying God, they're worshiping God, and angels are ministering on behalf of God. So d is it that when we are submitted to authority, we position ourselves to be open to ministering to, Right? That by, by not being constantly shaking my fist at God's authority going, well, I don't interpret it that way, right? That somehow that humility allows us to be in a position to be ministered to, right? Does it, does it somehow testify to who God is, right? That there are angels who have heard this story, right? There's a war that's still to come. It's a political war, but we know that it's coming, right? What influence will it have? Does it, does it allow those angels to see? Man, these, these beings have every opportunity to turn from God, and yet they submit to him, right? I don't know what the benefit there is for us or for the angels, but I trust that there is one. I trust that there's something at work here and that, that Paul is communicating on behalf of the Holy Spirit that we need to understand that there is more to, there is more to being submitted to the authority of God than just I like it or I don't like it. That there is a spiritual benefit that is taking place not just potentially for us but for others. He goes on and says, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So Paul, a little bit of sarcasm, brings in this point about the angels, and then he says, look, nevertheless, like we can sit here and talk about this all day long, it's true man came first, but woman is clearly more beautiful than man, Right? Man is now birthed by woman, right? So not, God doesn't just come and craft every man. He crafted one, okay? And now men come from women and all come from God. So why let this be a stumbling block? And what he says in this is that he goes, look, okay, we're to be like Christ. Men, women, you are to be like Christ. That means that you are to be imitating. You're not going to be Christ, 
You're to be like him. That's what you're striving for. And if what you're getting hung up on is your authority over this individual and their authority over you, you're missing the fact that we're all created by God, that we're all called to some form of, of submission to authority. It is a reality. None of us are exempted from it. And I think that that, that image is the problem, is that we have had, sometimes in the church, a, a expectation from men that women are submitted to authority while men themselves don't submit to any authority. And it's not the biblical model, right? It's just not the biblical model. I am to be submitted to God, meaning in, in all things, in every area of my life, I've got to submit to God before I can ever have any type of conversation about what my marriage looks like. So he says here in verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now, this is a really interesting statement, this, this, this statement here, judge for yourselves. Paul says that this is not something that needs a, 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 an ordinance from God. I don't have to sit here and give you divine revelation. Remove God from the equation, right? Remove Christianity from the equation. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? So each of us can make sense of this. Track with me, right? If you're in here today, you have the capacity inside of you to be able to connect the dots on this. You may not like the dots that are connected, okay? But you have the ability to do that, okay? So is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? So we've already said that that was a symbol for the day, Okay, what is the symbol for today? Judge for yourself. What is the symbol for today? What is the thing that physically distinguishes you as a child of God from someone who is not a child of God, somebody who is disobedient to God? I think I would make the argument, whether it is a man or a woman, you can fill in the blank. I'm going to argue that it's some form of modesty, right? And anytime I talk about modesty, I get the same arguments, right? And typically, I don't get these arguments directly. People have conversations with other people about, I can't believe Pastor Jim talked about that because I am wearing whatever I want when I go to the beach. You know what I'm saying? And then somebody says, hey, they were saying this. And it's like, I'm not telling you what to wear when you go to the beach. I'm just telling you I might not come and play volleyball with you at the beach. You know what I'm saying? Uh, all right. Um, the, the idea here. The idea is what sets you apart. Not, it's not my responsibility, right? Like, I, I can't be in charge of what a man thinks and does, right? Okay? Uh, you're right. You can't be in charge of that. And, and I'm not even going to say that you're responsible for that, right? But are you honoring God in what you're wearing? And I know that this pressure sits heavier on the ladies than it does the men, just like it did then. It, it's not any different right? I mean, that's who, what he's addressing. He's addressing the fact that this pressure sets, sets a lot, lot heavier on women, right? And Paul says, like, do the math for yourself. Like, if you really are coming to a place where you're like, hey, man, like, God's going to be happy if I'm just on the nude beach doing my thing, right? You know, like, if you really believe that, then, then what is it? You know what I'm saying? I, I, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you what it is. Uh, uh, you fill in the blank. Uh, I do think, though, that you are capable of filling that blank in and figuring out how do I live my life in such a way that the, the way that I present myself 
in prayer, in my marriage, in my community honors God. And I'm, I'm okay with that symbol. I'm okay with that. So Paul inserts the premise for how culture plays a role in this debate. He's using their understanding of culture, and he's saying there are some cultural expectations. They're going to look at you, and they're going to go, are they really a follower of Christ? Because even those who are not followers of Christ have a standard. So followers of Christ should all the more have a standard. Verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? What is this word nature? Uh, it's native disposition, uh, constitution, the manner in which something is presented, okay, right? So what does he say? Even those without divine revelation have this standard, right? He's talking about the culture of the day. So what, what is the standard that even those who are not hearing from Jesus have some standard? Like, what is that standard? Can we as Christians at least be at what that standard is when it comes to the, the, the way that we are presenting ourselves to the world around us inside of our marriages when we are even presenting ourselves to God? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And this is interesting right here. He says, if anyone is contentious, what does that mean? That means fond of strife. He says, just, we have no such practice. So if you're like, I will do whatever I want. Nobody's telling me the what's what, right? He just simply says, like, we're, we're just not engaged in that conversation. And you go, well, you know, somebody can do this and still be a Christian, right? They can still be a believer, right? Okay? They can be fond of strife. But I'll just remind you that, that it was the religious leaders of the day that came to Jesus, right? And what did he say? He said, you brood of viper, you sons of hell, right? I mean, listen, calling yourself something, believing you're something, carrying it out in the community, right? Okay? Dressing up the part, right? It doesn't make it real. Jesus says, man, you guys, you, you, you're leading more people to, to the enemy than the enemy's leading. The things you get up and say, you expect them to do things you don't even do yourself. So I just remind you that it's, you're capable of going, yeah, I believe in Jesus and I'm a Christian, right? And still be able to be a brood of vipers, sons of hell. Now, here's the really important part we're going to close with. Jesus walked out what it looks like to be under authority. He did this in an amazing way for us. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 2 here. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In the form of God, he did not, look at this, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not see himself as being capable 
himself trying to be like the Father, us trying to be like Christ. He was a lesser version. He was never going to be able to embody what it looked like to be God the Creator for us. He was never going to rise to that equality. Why? Because God the Creator snaps his finger. He speaks with his voice and things happen. And Jesus knew that in order to fulfill that which needed to be fulfilled for an Adam, a a man, to live a sinless life, he couldn't walk around doing that. So he did not even think, I'm not... I I am the form of God. I I can do the thing that I want to do right now, but I cannot do it and fulfill that which is prophetically needed. So he accepted, right, a position of submission that was needed for him. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And so what position did he take? That of a servant. Do you know, men, that if you want to be really great husbands and imitators of Christ, you need to outserve everyone in your home at the very least. You should try to outserve everybody in your community. I'm reminded of how Jesus is at the last meal with those that were closest to him, and he's washing their feet. And you're like, well, you know, what's the big deal? They, they were... They were wearing open-toed sandals, right? Dirt roads, plenty of manure, all right? And they come in, and Jesus is like, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter's like, oh, no, 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 you're not washing my feet. Why? Because that's what a servant does. Let me wash your feet. Jesus says, you know, if, if you don't let me do this, you can't, be, you can't have any part in eternity. And he's like, wash my whole body. Men, if we're imitators of Christ, if we're the glory of God, we serve like nobody's business. Nobody gets to throw toxic masculinity at us. Let them have that argument out there. It doesn't exist in imitators of Christ. We repent first. We tell our children we're sorry when we mess up. We love our wives unconditionally. We do the hard work. Jesus modeled this as a servant. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I, I just want to say this, to the, especially to the single ladies that are in here, right? You do not have to settle for a man that will not serve you and love you. You love Christ, and you and McGregor. <laughs> if you love Christ, okay then you can expect a man who loves Christ. And if a guy comes along and he's not serving and loving and modeling what it looks like to be an imitator of Christ, I tell, I tell my daughter all the time, all she has to do is look that guy in the eyes and say, I have more fun hanging out with my dad. Call me. I'll come pick her up. And if he has anything to say, he can say it to me and a few men from the church. Right? Y'all got my back. All right? You know what I'm talking about? I have an expectation that my daughter knows that she has the freedom to, to, to in, be engaged in a relationship with a guy who's going to treat her the way that she deserves to be treated. And as I'm reading this, I'm less concerned as a man with whether my wife has a scarf over her head than I am in this text over whether or not I am modeling what it looks like to be the glory of God. Because that's what it says about me. And if anyone had the right to rebel and say, I'm sticking it to the man, I don't care what, it was Jesus. Jesus had done nothing wrong. 
They're getting, they're getting ready to crucify the guy. They're going to beat him. Like if anybody could have said, oh, no, enough's enough, right? You didn't know it, but I'm Jet Li, Jackie Chan. I'm all of them combined, and you're all going to die. It's going to be Mortal Kombat 1.0. Boom, just like that. He could have stepped out and been the biggest, baddest thing that we've ever seen, right? No, what did he do? He just took the beating. Right? The apostles are like, no, 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 no. I'm going to sit beside you while you're ruling as king. And he's like, no, you're just missing it. I'm going to die, right? Death won't be able to hold me down. And that's the grace and the hope that's extended to us as children of God is that by being believers who walk out what it looks like to be imitators of Christ, small versions, lovers, of Jesus. As we do that, right, death will not hold us down. And I'll end with this thought right here. Listen, you and I, we aren't called to happiness. We are called to obedience. And this is the problem. This is the problem, is that we get hung up in what feels good today, what makes me happy today, and we make decisions based on that, right? But what that does not bring is long-term joy. It just doesn't. I was counseling with a guy several years ago who um, was divorcing his wife, and this was not the first wife that he had left, and he was already ready for his third. He'd already started dating her, and was as soon as the divorce was done, he was getting married. And uh, he didn't want to show up to connect anymore. And so I texted him and I said, you know, what, what, what will your children say one day, right? What will be said of you when you die, right? I'm sure there'll be plenty of people that'll be really, really nice at the graveside. But behind closed doors, what will your legacy be? And he said, well, hopefully my kids wanted me to be happy, right? And I said, that's sweet, but that's not what happens. Your kids will be sitting in my office talking about the impact that their dad's decisions had on their life. And they won't have the courage to come and talk to you because they know all you'll do is walk out. But you've been happy for a moment. And he never talked to me again, make no mistake. Because I'm not necessarily always the nicest guy in those moments. Like, I, you know, it's just a reality. It's hard sometimes. But as children of God, we're not chasing happiness, we're, we're being obedient. And here's the thing, is that God will do the hard work that's needed sometimes when you aren't feeling joy to bring joy. The legacy, the end of it all, it's a really beautiful thing. Uh, in fact, I'll just go ahead and say this. Coming up, uh, you know, Christmas is on a Saturday this year, and the next day on that Sunday, we're going to have service. And I know a lot of people will be gone. If you're in town, we want you to come. We're going to have a, a legacy service that day. Um, uh, I'm going to have my father-in-law, who is my pastor here, with us, and multiple generations inside of our lives of men who love Jesus and do the hard work, and we're going to be sharing from that perspective. Can I tell you, if you can think legacy, right? then you can think that it's okay to just walk through difficult things in obedience and figure it out because it honors God. And by honoring God, God knows what's best, right? We, we put this expectation on our kids all the time. Don't go play in the street. It's not safe. 
right? We expect them to trust us that though it might look like the perfect place to play basketball or some street hockey, it might not be, right? And God's the same way. He's a good father, and he's saying there's just, there's a better way. If you'll just trust me, it might be hard right now. You might feel like you're missing out, but there's a joy that's coming. And, and men, women, however you fill in that blank, whatever it is you think that within your culture sets you apart so people go, man, there's something different about him. There's something different about her, right? I would encourage you, be submitted to that. It's inside of you. I don't have to get up here and draw it out on a dry erase board for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you get it. You get it. Amen. Let's stand to our feet and close today. Listen, if you're in this place and you don't know Jesus as Lord of your life, it's a really simple invitation to come to know him. Uh, uh, we have a prayer ministry team that will be available in the back. Uh, the gospel is for anyone and everyone, right? Uh, the, the hope for community among other believers and support during difficult times is for anyone and everyone. And we want to invite you to be a part of that family. Brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you are living right here in Savannah, Georgia, or you are a refugee from Syria, if you love Jesus, you're a part of the family, right? It's an eternal family. And I have more in common with them, I say this all the time, with a refugee in Syria, right, that, that loves Jesus than I do with a neighbor who is the wealthiest person in my neighborhood that doesn't love Jesus, right? Because forever and ever, that's my brother and my sister. And we want to invite you to be a part of that family. We can share more with you about what that looks like. If you are in this place and you are, you're, no, you're convicted by this, like, man, how am I in rebellion to God? How am I not meeting the expectations that I really know inside of me God has for what it looks like to be a follower of Christ? The first step is just, hey, to repent and begin to figure out what it looks like to make, it, make a difference, right? To be different. So I want to pray with you, and then we're going to start setting up outside, all right? Jesus, we love you. Uh, we just thank you for your mercy, your faithfulness, your grace in our lives. We come to you right now, and we, I just want to take a moment and lift up this neighborhood. The men and women, the boys and girls that will stop by our parking lot tonight to to, to engage in some, some activities. Lord, I just pray that, that there would just, that your, your presence, right, your spirit would be a very real presence on this property, that there would be something different in, in, the, uh, in the hearts of those who come here today in how they experience you. Those that don't know you, those that have refused you, those that don't understand you, Lord, that there would be something that would draw them in, Lord, that a seed would be planted. Lord, if those are seeds that need to be planted, that you're going to work to, to, to water and fertilize years down the road, Lord, we trust that you know what you're doing. We trust that, that, that we are just being faithful to love in a, in a difficult season. But Lord, we just want to know that, you, that we are in submission to you and that you are honored by what we do, by our sacrifice of time and energy today. I pray for those that are in this room today and those that are watching online that do not know you, Lord, that, that your Holy Spirit would bring the conviction and the prompting for them to come to know you and those, Lord, that might be under conviction or even have some conviction about people who they're close to that, that need to understand what it looks like about presenting ourselves as men and women of Christ, husbands and wives 
of the eternal creator, Lord, that, 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 that you would minister to them and through us to others. And we ask this in your mighty name, amen and amen. Hey, guys, we love you. If you've got time, stick around. As always, we'll see you next Sunday. Go change your world.